Welcome to Legal Toolkit, bringing you the latest legal trends and business initiatives to help you manage your law firm with your host, Jared Correa. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to another episode of the award-winning Legal Toolkit podcast here on the one and only Legal Talk Network. If you are looking for the season one DVD of Quantum Leap or perhaps Dukes of Hazard, hit me up. I've got those in my library. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. If you're a first-time listener, hopefully you become a long-time listener. And if you're Jon Snow, you probably should have swiped left. As always, I'm your show host, Jared Korea, and in addition to casting this pod, I am the CEO of Red Cave Law Firm Consulting, which offers subscription-based law practice management consulting services for law firms, bar associations, and legal vendors. Check us out at redcavelegal.com. I'm also the COO of Gideon Software, Inc., which offers chatbots, the first-to-market chatbot builder, and predictive analytics created specifically for law firms. Find out more at www.gideon.legal. You can listen to my other other podcast, The Lobby List, a family travel show I host with my wife, Jessica, on iTunes, so subscribe, rate, and comment. But here on The Legal Toolkit, which is a podcast you're listening to right now, we provide you twice each month with a new tool to add to your own legal toolkit so that your practices will become more and more like best practices. In this episode, we're going to talk about how amazing paralegals and legal assistants are, which is truly one of my favorite topics. But before I introduce today's guest, Let's take a moment to thank our sponsors. Answer One is a leading virtual receptionist and answering services provider for lawyers. You can find out more by giving them a call at 800-ANSWER-1 or online at www.answerone.com. That's www.answer1.com. Scorpion crushes the standard for law firm online marketing with proven campaign strategies to get attorneys better cases from the internet. Partner with Scorpion to get an award-winning website and ROI-positive marketing programs today. Visit scorpionlegal.com forward slash podcast. TimeSolve is the number one web-based time and billing software for lawyers. Providing solutions since 1999, TimeSolve provides the most comprehensive billing features for law firms big and small. www.timesolve.com without the E. T-I-M-E-S-O-L-V.com. My guest today is Keith Shannon, who is an instructor in the Paralegal Technology Training Program at Central Piedmont Community College in North Carolina. He's a double wildcat, having graduated from the University of Kentucky for both college and law school. He also has a master's degree in journalism from Marshall University. He is at Keith Shannon 8 on Twitter, and he's surely more active and engaging on that platform than the other seven Keith Shannons. I'm fairly certain of that, and I would never have those dudes on my show anyway. He's written a book about raising children called My Boss Wears Diapers and has an as yet unnamed podcast because I think he tried to steal the name from somebody else, uh, focused on Broadway, which he co-hosts with his daughter. And this is long overdue. I should have had Keith on the show several times by this point. But Keith, welcome to the big show. Thank you. Thanks, Jared. It's great to be here. Yeah, this is going to be fun. Um, All right. So full disclosure, I'm not what you would call cultured. My family tells me this all the time, and I've never done like theater, Broadway, any of that stuff. So I need you to tell me like, why should I care about Broadway in the first instance? And then if I went to go see a Broadway show that would convince me that it was cool and exciting and something that I should be on top of, like what show should I go see? (laughs) Well, let's see. Um, 
you should care about Broadway and just theater in general because it's fun. It's it's a great escape. It's some place to to get away from uh, the grind of being like an in demand legal consultant or uh, in your case a chatbot daddy. Do you know anyone like that? No. <laughs> well, you you know you could use an escape and. Um, you know, if you're into, I'm I'm into musicals, and both of my daughters are, and so the the whole theater experience, the the orchestra and the lights, and the the occasionally surly usher, the whole thing just just makes for a fun experience. Uh, so it's you know, it's an enjoyable escape. Now, in terms of shows that you might want to go see, it's a shame that SpongeBob SquarePants the musical has closed. I think that would really be up your alley. Uh, and there, there's another Oh, really? One. Interesting. Yes, there was a SpongeBob musical, but it closed. Uh, there is also one that used to be on, uh, that was written by David Byrne, because I know you're a Talking Heads fan, called Here Lies Love. I can Love. get into that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that that was a good one. But I think for you, if you went to New York right now, the, the best bang for the buck for a musical for you would be Wicked, I think. That's the story behind this story of the Wizard of Oz. So I think you would like that one. For a non-musical, the, oh, cool. the natural choice would be To Kill a Mockingbird, I think. Ah, good call. Good call. I can't actually drive to New York City, so I'm actually taking these recommendations and writing them down. I know Wicked because like the person who starred in Wicked was like the woman who eventually was Elsa in Frozen, right? That's correct. Yeah, That's you, how I know that. You know okay. your theater, yeah. And, and I do have one <laughs> I know other... one thing about theater. Yeah, I have one other recommendation for you that that I think might you might enjoy. It's, this is off Broadway, but there's a show called Drunk Shakespeare, and uh, that's performed in a speakeasy. And one actor who is chosen every performance has to take at least five shots during the performance and still perform Shakespeare. So that is an an evening guaranteed to uh, be enjoyable by somebody. Anyway, that's, so that sounds like it's right up my go. alley. Thank you. Good recommendations. All right, let's get into the topic at hand. Paralegals, legal assistants. My wife is a legal assistant. I think legal assistants are phenomenal. So what actually is a paralegal these days? Because I think there's a lot of confusion around definitions. And then what's a paralegal versus a legal assistant? And what type of training or certifications are actually required to do this kind of work? Well, you are right. There is a lot of confusion between what a paralegal is and what a legal assistant is and whether a paralegal or legal assistant needs to be certified or licensed or anything like that. So first of all, in general, in the vast, vast majority of states, to my knowledge, anybody can sort of call themselves a paralegal. If if you're a legal secretary with a bunch of experience or if you're somebody with no experience, you can just say, hey, I'm a paralegal. And that's sort of one of the problems because anybody could be a paralegal. So some states, and the state that I'm in right now, North Carolina is one of those, have started certification programs where you can become a state-certified paralegal. And so that gives you the distinction. In, in North Carolina, you have to have graduated from an approved educational program and also pass an exam that in North Carolina is 150 multiple choice questions on all sorts of legal areas, real estate contracts, family law, civil litigation, criminal law, all all sorts of areas. And then to continue to be certified, you have to have, uh, I think, six hours of continuing legal or paralegal education per year. 
So th- there is the designation of a certified paralegal. Um, the ABA has a definition of a paralegal, and the ABA does not make a distinction between a paralegal and a legal assistant. And I think any distinctions that get made between the two of them are usually made by the employer, really. I've, I've heard of firms that say they have legal assistants and, and paralegals, and it's just a division of duties, although there is kind of a hierarchy, but who is on top really just depends on the, on the employer. But the ABA has a, a definition, and they say a legal assistant or a paralegal is a person qualified by education, training, or work experience uh, who's employed in a law office, corporation, etc., and who performs specifically delegated substantive legal work for which a lawyer is responsible. So I, I think the, the key there is substantive work. It's something more than just being a typist, uh, more than just being a clerk. You actually put some training and substantive knowledge to work to make some, some choices and to really assist the attorney in just about anything the attorney can do, the, the key being that the attorney has to supervise and be responsible for your work. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. All right, so we have an actual definition to deal with. We understand kind of what paralegals and legal assistants do. And I have a lot of respect for people who do that sort of work. So I think when this comes into play, like, is when a law firm is growing. You don't see a ton of solo attorneys who are surrounded by, like, 20 paralegals necessarily. (laughs) So at what growth point do you think a firm needs a paralegal? Um, Can it be a solo with a computer? Like, is it worth it to hire a paralegal at that point? And if you're a large firm... I think the question that comes up a lot is like how many paralegals should be shared by a single attorney? Because the more, the better in many cases, especially depending on the practice area. But I think law firms have a tough time like actually determining the right ratio. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, of course, in terms of of the growth point that a firm needs a paralegal, being that I am an attorney, you know that the answer is going to be it depends because that's what we (laughs) all learn. That's right. That's what we all learn to say in law school, much to the chagrin of my mom, who when she would ask me legal questions and I would say that she would go, we paid all this money and the best you can do is it depends. But it does depend. <laughs> and and you'd be surprised. We have had graduates from our program and usually they've started as interns, like with a small sole practitioner who who is just a, a lawyer with a computer and they end up getting jobs uh, one, as a matter of fact, one of our graduates from just a couple of years ago works with uh, just a sole practitioner. It's just the attorney, the paralegal. They they don't even have separate rooms. They sit in the same room with two computers. And this attorney cannot imagine what it was like before this paralegal started helping her. It's it's really amazing. Uh, that doesn't hurt that this particular student is brilliant as well. Uh, but but we've had a couple of students like that who end up going into a firm and just becoming the right-hand person to an attorney. But in terms of, you know, if you are a sole practitioner or even a, a multi-practice firm, I think the thing to look at is, is to start looking at when the day-to-day work starts interfering with your business and ethical responsibilities. In other words, you're so busy doing, you're so busy drafting pleadings and answering interrogatories and getting things in the mail that you're starting to slip up on being in touch with your clients and being up to date on your calendar. 
and things like that. And as you know, those are the sources of the ethical problems that happen with attorneys when when you start when you start slipping and you start having to to really work hard just to keep up. At that point, it probably makes sense, even if you're going to take a financial hit in the short run, it's much better to pay a paralegal to help you out than it would be to face an ethics charge or a malpractice case. If, you, if you're scared, you're going to miss that deadline or some client is going to be mad at you and file an ethics claim when you could invest a little bit of money and a little bit of time and get a paralegal, although I would like you to invest a lot of money for paralegals. But... <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, <laughs> of course, you can, you know, you and and also it's not an all or nothing thing. You you can hire someone part time, or you can get a virtual paralegal part time and just see how it works. Or even like uh, we have an internship program here at our school. Uh, you could could hire an intern, and again, hopefully pay them. But I know that some firms, most firms, probably don't. But try it on and see if it helps and look at the bigger picture and look at the in terms of the return on investment. Maybe you're spending some money right now, but maybe you're saving your entire practice down the road because you're actually able to practice law as opposed to just hanging on by your fingernails and hoping that you're going to avoid an ethics complaint or a malpractice suit. Also, you know, well, in terms of... of how many attorneys should there be per paralegal? Yes. I, I saw some statistic that said, and then this was an older article that said that there there was a figure of 3.57 attorneys per paralegal. And I, I thought about when I first started practicing, and I think I would have been the 0.57 in that. <laughs> <laughs> in that. But, um, you know, again, on on that end, when things start getting not getting done, and also it's going to depend on the attorneys. If if your firm does not have a style manual, and you've got three attorneys who use three different pleading formats and three different captions, three different fonts, and three different types of calendars, then then it's going to be much harder for a paralegal to take care of those three attorneys than than if you're with a firm that has bothered to uh, kind of come up with a uniform style manual and uniform uh, file naming conventions and, and things like that. So that's something that would go into it. I, I would worry if there were probably more than four attorneys per paralegal in any firm. I would yeah. think that might be too much. Right. Systems, people. Systems. Um, <laughs> right. You talked about this a little bit as well in terms of like what kind of work a paralegal does, which is often substantive. So let's kind of delineate that a little bit so attorneys have a better understanding of what kind of work they're getting here. So what can a paralegal do and what can a paralegal not do? Well, there are, believe it or not, the ABA comes to, uh, comes to the rescue again. The, the ABA has put out guidelines for the utilization of paralegals. I don't know if, if people are aware of this, but you can find those on the ABA website. I and, was unaware. Really? Yes, they're yes. you know, and and they're not the be all and end all, but but they certainly help. They're, they're kind of like uh, they're ten guidelines, sort of like the Ten Commandments. And if nothing else, they make you stop and think about how you're using paralegals. So, so basically, and again, I'm going to to kind of paraphrase and read from the ABA. You know, it says provided the lawyer maintains responsibility for the work product, a lawyer may delegate to a 
paralegal any task normally performed by the lawyer, except those tasks prescribed to a non-lawyer by statute court rule. Now, that that definition sort of folds in on itself. It's kind of like uh, a paralegal can do anything except what they can't do. But <laughs> right. the the idea is that the attorney has to maintain control and responsibility and oversight. And and the ethics rules for, for the different states, I'm sure, set out specifics. For example, in North Carolina, a paralegal obviously can't question a witness at a deposition or really represent anyone in court. Uh, although there are, of course, exceptions for the Social Security Administration and, and those sorts of things. But there are a paralegal can get up in court and tell an attorney, and, and that this is in our state, um, that or tell a judge that an attorney is running late or you know can't make it right now. Please, can we please wait or something like that? Make a make a non-representative statement about about what's going on. The ABA does clearly state that a, a lawyer may not delegate to a paralegal the responsibility for establishing an attorney-client relationship. The paralegal can be there and and give the client the papers to sign, but they can't establish that relationship. Uh, They cannot establish the fee to be charged. They can tell the client what the fee is, but they can't come up with the fee. And they can't, and and this is the, what I think is the hardest one, They, they can't render a legal opinion to a client and I know from from plaintiff's personal injury work, sometimes the client has the most exposure to the paralegal more than any attorney. And so they they respect that paralegal's opinion about things. So I can see very well if a settlement offer is made, the client actually calling up the paralegal and saying, hey, what do you think? Should I accept this? Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, And the thing is, if the paralegal has been around for a while, the paralegal actually knows the answer to the question, and they're not allowed to say. And and what would hurt would be if, if the client actually gives the wrong answer and says, yeah, I'm going to accept it. And the paralegal is sitting there with all the alarm bells going off saying, oh, no, 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 you shouldn't. But but the paralegal has to has to refrain and, and be quiet because they can't render a legal opinion. Interesting. All right. This has been a great discussion so far. I personally learned a lot. Well, we're going to stop for a moment. We're going to think about our favorite Broadway composers. Um, Keith, if you could tell me a Broadway composer, that would be helpful. And then we'll come back. So let's take a break. Here are some of the things you should buy. Do you feel like your marketing efforts aren't getting you the high-value cases your firm deserves? For over 15 years, Scorpion has helped thousands of law firms just like yours to attract new cases and to grow their practices. As a Google Premier Partner and winner of Google's Platform Innovator Award, Scorpion has the right resources and technology to aggressively market your law firm and to generate better cases from the internet. For more information, visit scorpionlegal.com forward slash podcast today. Imagine billing day being the happiest day of the month instead of the day you dread. Nobody went to law school because they love drafting invoices for clients. At TimeSolve, our attorneys save on average over eight hours a month in billing work. That means more billable time and turning billing day into happy day. Learn more about how to get to your time and billing happy place at timesolve.com. That's www.timesolv, leave off the e.com. Remember, that's timesolv.com. All right, everybody. Thanks for staying on. I was just freshening up a bit, but I'm back on board now. I'm here talking with Keith Shannon 
We're here podcasting about paralegals and legal assistants and how fantastic they are. All right, we, we delved into this a little bit in terms of what a paralegal can and cannot do, but attorneys are always worried about unauthorized practice of law issues. And so how could that arise based on a paralegal law firm relationship? Well, and I think we just talked about that with actually a, a paralegal, you know, rendering a, a legal opinion or a paralegal yep. doing some sort of negotiating with, say, for example, a, a lawyer doesn't have time to talk to an insurance adjuster or the other uh, attorney, but it would usually be, I would think, an insurance adjuster and says, okay, transmit this settlement offer to the adjuster. And then maybe the paralegal takes on the responsibility of, of actually negotiating with the adjuster a little bit. Again, because the paralegal might have the, the intellectual chops to be able to do that, but they don't have the, the law license to do it. Yeah, and I think that's probably the biggest challenge for paralegals is that they know a ton. And in some cases, I think more than the attorneys. So it's tough oh, to yeah. refrain. Yes, yeah, that's and, and certainly as a young attorney in the firm that I started with, uh, we didn't call yes. them paralegals, but they were they were secretaries, uh, and they knew everything, and uh, certainly they they could have practiced law, I think, if if they had had the license, but but I think that's the the sort of thing coming up with with legal opinions, maybe even whispering them under the table to the client, saying, well, I don't think that's a good settlement offer. Those sorts of things, uh, maybe soliciting clients, and and this would be maybe an attorney who who should know better, but getting out there and and having a paralegal solicit clients and establish the attorney-client relationship, those sorts of things are are highly dangerous and could get the attorney certainly the attorney is responsible ultimately, but also the paralegal. I mean, in in North Carolina, it's a misdemeanor to practice law without a license. Uh, I don't know what it is in oh, other interesting. states. Yeah, so it's it's a criminal matter as well as as just uh, an ethical and and bar uh, a state bar matter. All right, so you clearly know more about paralegals than anyone I know. So, and I mean that as a compliment. Um, <laughs> so we talked about this a little bit before, like the importance of systems, right? So, mm-hmm. what sort of law office technology training do you think paralegals need to have? And does it make sense for firms to invest in technology training for paralegals? as they would invest in technology training theoretically for associate attorneys. Uh, I like I like the way you said theoretically for associate attorneys. But, <laughs> <laughs> I did that on purpose, yes. Yeah, because that is that's the reason that, that you should invest in technology training for, for paralegals. But I guess to back up what sort of training should they have and and I teach a class, as you know, in, in law office technology. And it is amazing that with the things that attorneys have in their office, that their paralegals probably aren't trained to use them to the to the maximum efficiency that that they could. And and you know I'm talking about the Microsoft Office suite. Looking at Word, uh, it's amazing. I've got people who are paralegals now who are in my classes, and I teach them Word, and I say, well, how many people use Quick Parts? And they look at me like they don't know what I'm talking about. How many people use macros? How many people use styles? <laughs> Nobody knows go, what quick parts are. Right. And, and they, they go, oh, you know, styles. No, we don't use that. How many people know how to do, you know, the word will generate a table of cases and authorities for you very easily. And it will comply with most standards in most states. 
you don't have to type anything. Word will do that for you. So, so at the very least, and, and you know, I've heard Adriana Linares talk about this on her podcast, at the very least, invest in teaching your paralegals how to maximize the, the use of Word, how to use templates. If you don't have a document management program or uh, something that will actually construct a document, you can use quick parts and templates to generate a document that will just ask you questions, just like, you know, uh, some of the bankruptcy software and the real estate software. Well, you can do that on a smaller level with Word and, and have it just ask you questions and you answer the questions and then it will spit out a document. But you've got to know how to do that. So there are all sorts of things that plain old Word can do and again, Excel and, and all the others that a lot of paralegals don't know about. And it's easy just to, to send someone to a CLE or some type of training or get some online training, and it would be well worth it. It will increase the efficiency of a law firm dramatically if you just get them to know that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. One day, one day people <laughs> will start doing this. <laughs> yeah. Someday uh, is is a day of the week now. But <laughs> also training paralegals to look at, at uh, practice management systems like Clio and Rocket Matter and Practice Panther, those things. I, I, we had a student who was a, an intern, and as part of her internship, and this was so cool because it gave her an excuse to be exposed to all of these, she was in charge of evaluating practice management programs for the firm. So she got you know, trial accounts to all these practice management programs and, and really did a side-by-side -side comparison for them. And that's not a bad idea because it's going to be the paralegal who's going to be using them probably the most anyway. So those practice management oh, programs, that's always a good idea. All right. So let's talk about another technology application that continues to gain steam and is probably part of like just about every litigation case there is right now, e-discovery, right? So what role can a paralegal play in terms of e-discovery at a law firm? Well, this is something that I, I get excited about because, and I, I tell my students about this all the time, because I, I look at e-discovery for a paralegal as, as kind of like the Wild West. I mean, it's wide open. It's It's really rare. You know, when I was practicing law, there was sort of nothing new. I mean, there were no new areas. It was a while before, you know, internet stuff came along and, and you know, you just practiced law and there there was no way to, to really blaze a trail. But I think for a paralegal, e-discovery is a great opportunity to blaze a trail. If you can become an expert or as much of an expert as you can in the technology end of e-discovery and put your substantive legal knowledge to work, I can see how you would be invaluable to a law firm. Because the way I look at it, tech guys really aren't interested in law, and lawyers don't have time to come up to speed on the tech. So you really need somebody with one foot in each world and a paralegal who plays their cards right, who can go online and get some, some education in those e-discovery applications. And a lot of those applications, you just call them up and they, they'll give you free training if you want. Just get trained and go to CLEs. You can get certified, I think, in, in some e-discovery. Uh, there are some certification programs. But do what you can to maximize your knowledge of that and do what you can to maximize your knowledge of uh, litigation and you know all of the electronically stored information rules there. And, you know, I, I have this, this, this dream that at some point some paralegal is going to be at a job interview 
and say something uh, about the Sedona conference or Zuba Lake or a litigation hold, and, and the attorney will just go crazy and hire them on the spot because, you know, they'll say, <laughs> you know e-discovery, you are hired. So I, and you'll I be think, sitting in your living room, and all of a sudden you'll feel like a, a warm feeling wash over you. Be like someone just was hired. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I, I Every time a, a bell rings, an angel gets a swing. <laughs> That's right. That's that's exactly the way it feels. Whenever whenever one of my students gets a job, uh, a bell rings. But uh, but no, I, I just think it, it really is a tremendous opportunity for somebody. You know, and if 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 somebody already has the the technical expertise, then then go to a, an approved program and become a paralegal. I would think that you could you could be the the liaison between the tech and the legal world in terms of e-discovery. Oh, totally. Yeah, that's that's great advice. Um, adding skills, new school skills, stuff that an attorney doesn't understand. That's great. Um, all right, we're going to take a break before we hit part three of the podcast. So while I look for the animal crackers I left under the couch, listen to these words from our sponsors. Is your firm experiencing missed calls, empty voicemail boxes, and potential clients you'll never hear from again? Enter Answer One Virtual Receptionists. They're more than just an answering service. Answer One's available 24-7. They can even schedule appointments, respond to emails, integrate with Clio, and much more. Answer One helps make sure your clients have the experience they deserve. Give them a call yourself at 800-ANSWER-1 or visit them at answerone.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. All right. Thanks for coming back, everybody. I never left. I hope you're enjoying your loosely held beliefs about the nature of divinity. Let's get back to our conversation with Key Shannon who's talking to me about paralegals and legal assistance and the theater. So let's find out more. So Keith, law firms, actually in my consulting practice, are often asking me, like, how do I find and hire good people? And obviously that extends to paralegals as well. So where would a law firm look to find a good paralegal or a good legal assistant? Well, I think... uh... I mean, I know that most law firms probably think they should just throw an ad out there, which I guess is is fine. But I think we all know that people really don't get jobs so much through ads as they do through networking. So if you have a local paralegal association, it, it doesn't hurt. I imagine they have a LinkedIn presence. It doesn't hurt to get in that LinkedIn group. I'm sure they would welcome attorneys and start watching the the people that are in there and and looking for people who who might be looking for for jobs experienced paralegals but also you can use a local paralegal association there's a two ways that you can can use it you can be of service to them because if there is a, a paralegal education requirement or even if there's not if they just give seminars occasionally then if you're an attorney sign up to present at those seminars and get to know the president of the local association and get your face out there. And so you'll have a ready pool of folks who know you and who you know to maybe call on if you need a paralegal. Even if you don't know anyone who is out of work and looking for a job, if you know people in the paralegal association, you can call them and see if they know of somebody. And also the recommendations will be better because they might know who to steer you clear of and also who is who is doing well. Also, if there is a paralegal education program, I do recommend internships. Now, our internship program is pretty good. We 
assign a faculty advisor to all of our interns. And so as faculty advisors, we make the firm identify at least three measurable learning objectives for the paralegal student to learn during the course of the semester. And we do site visits and we supervise them to make sure it's it's not just getting coffee and making copies. They're actually learning something. But that's a great way to try on a paralegal. If you see that your practice is enhanced by a paralegal then, then, uh, and a specific student, then you can go ahead and offer them a job. Or maybe, you know, when the semester's over, if the person's not working out, give someone else an opportunity. So I think that's a, a good yeah. resource. No, that's great advice. All right, let's talk a little bit about like late career issues or mid-career issues for paralegals. And I think this is, I know this is true of, an, of attorneys. Attorneys work really hard, a lot of hours, it's demanding. Oftentimes they burn out. And there are some resources for attorneys who get burnout and need to work through that. Does the same thing happen to paralegals and legal assistants? And if so, how does one manage that? Well, uh, I think you know the answer to the whether or not that it does happen to them. It, it I'm going to say yes. Yes, <laughs> it, it definitely does. I've had students, you know, it's fun to have students follow up and, and tell me how things are going. And, you know, sometimes they just are overwhelmed. I mean, they're working just as late as the attorneys are and they can't get away from things. You know, their weekends suddenly are not their own. And so there is burnout. And the same, I think, the same rules or the same tips apply to paralegals that, that would apply to attorneys. The fact is that you're not alone. And there are paralegal associations, you know, national as well as local paralegal associations, the National Federation of Paralegals, and, you know, even the ABA, the state bar probably has some some paralegal associations. And and that's a resource that a paralegal really needs to look at in terms of, of just finding some help if they need someone to talk to or they they think they're they're burnt out. Um, that's some place to go. And the problem is people tend to wait until it's almost too late. But networking and and realizing you're not alone and being in there with other paralegals and seeing if if maybe you're being put into a situation that that's almost abusive in terms of the amount of work that you're being asked to do, that that's helpful. So you can can maybe look for another job or figure out another way, uh, you know, a way to to get away from things like theater, <laughs> for example. Ah, uh, you know, the great hobby. segue. We can talk a little yeah. bit more about theater as well. No, but that <laughs> but that's true. Like, and I think you make a great point about like being proactive about this because you're right. Like. Most people are using it to seek help on that score, especially lawyers and I think paralegals as well, who have always been people who have like handled themselves with no emotion, you know, because mm-hmm. that's like what the law practice, is, a lot of it is about. And it's very easy to get stuck in a rut and stay there. But being proactive is really helpful. So you make a great point there. Yeah. So I am introducing a new segment on the show that I'd like your help with. And this is okay. only the second time I've tried this. So what I want to do now is read a tweet. I'm going to start reading tweets that one of my guests write at the very end of every show. So I'm going to read a recent tweet of yours, and then I want you to explain it to me. Are you ready? <laughs> I'm ready. All right. I'm not going to try and do an impression or well, try you. to mimic your voice in any way. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> From March 20th, you write, day four of my being home alone while the girls are on a trip to Japan. I'm assuming that there has been an uptick in fast food stocks during this time. So does that mean you're 
not cooking for yourself? Does that mean your your uh, your girls are out in Japan, like just destroying McDonald's over there, or what's going on? Give me no. a window into the lifestyle. No, my uh, well, my my wife is half Japanese. Her mother is Japanese, and so uh, the week of March, when did you say it was twentieth? I guess both of my daughters, my wife and my mother-in-law, went on a trip to Japan. They went to Nagoya, where my mother-in-law grew up, and then over to Okinawa. So they were gone for a week. And I, oh, wow. I pledged to myself that I, it was going to be healthy and that I would cook and everything would be wonderful. And then I just failed. I was, they were greeting me by first name <laughs> at the drive-throughs. There was, as a matter of fact, this is actually true. One night I decided to to watch a movie on Netflix that was a documentary about about uh, vegan eating, and they kept showing all these pictures of meat and talking about how bad they were. Uh, and by the time that movie was over, I was absolutely ravenous for meat. Um, <laughs> and I went and bought, <laughs> I bought $16 worth of Taco Bell <laughs> that night. <laughs> and uh, that's that's true. Now, I didn't consume it all that evening. It was probably a two-day affair, but still. Oh, um, Mr. Shannon, your chalupa is ready. <laughs> that's right. They were actually bringing the food to my house by that point. Uh, oh, man. That sounds like a good deal, actually. Uh, right, so it sounds like everybody had fun in Japan. You had some fun at home, and now right. everybody's back together. That's correct. <laughs> yeah. Nice. I'm glad you can you can get back to normal eating habits again. Well, thanks yeah. thanks for participating. That's a fun new segment I'm trying to introduce. I enjoyed it. I hope you did. <laughs> I I did as well. That's that's very creative. And nicely done. <laughs> I try. Uh, sadly, however, we've reached the end of yet another episode of the Legal Toolkit Podcast. This was the podcast about paralegals and legal assistance, and we've been talking with Keith Shannon. Now, I'll be back on future shows with further insights into my soul, the soul of America, and the legal market. If you're feeling nostalgic for my dulcet tones, however, you can check out our entire show archive anytime you want at LegalTalkNetwork.com. So thanks again to Keith Shannon for making an appearance as my guest today. All right, Keith, can you tell everybody how they can find out more about you, including your work at the college down in North Carolina, and also your upcoming, yet-to-be-named Broadway podcast? Yes, yes. Um, for my, my work information, I'm at, at Central Piedmont Community College in Charlotte, North Carolina. So if anyone wants to reach out, my email address is Keith, K-E-I-T-H, dot Shannon, S-H-A-N-N-O-N, at CPCC, Central Piedmont Community College, cpcc.edu. And as you said, I'm also on Twitter, at Keith Shannon 8. Those other seven Keith Shannons, I don't know who they are. I actually think one of them is me. Posers, <laughs> that's who they are. From an earlier iteration. Um, and also, I do have a, a Gmail address, and that is KeithShannon6 at gmail.com. So You're all um, the Keith Shannons, I had no idea. That's right. And if you go there, um, you know, on on Twitter at the very least, uh, I will be putting out information about the as yet unnamed podcast. And you're right, we had a name for it, and I dragged my feet, and someone else came up with a podcast with the same name. It, it doesn't deal with theater, but it's got the same name. So we're renaming the podcast. It's as yet unnamed. We won't talk about that other podcast. No, no, we will not. But um, the, um, the our podcast, it'll be my daughter, Kara, who is a theater major, and I are the hosts, and it, it'll be fun. That's awesome. All right, everybody, so email Keith if you want. Check him out at uh, the community college page, 
and uh, hit him up on Twitter. He's very responsive, and uh, it's taken me too long to have him on the show. I think we'll have him on again at some point as well. So finally, uh, thanks again to Keith Shannon, and thanks to all of you out there for listening. This has been the Legal Toolkit Podcast, where we prefer Chipotle to Taco Bell. Thanks for listening to Legal Toolkit, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join host Jared Correa for his next podcast covering the current business trends for law firms. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.